You're listening to the Public Safety Drone Flight Podcast, your source of real-world, actionable aviation information for fire departments, police departments, and law enforcement agencies. This is the critical information you need to be an exceptional pilot and help save lives with flight. And now, your host, Public Safety Flight Chief Pilot, Steve Rode. Hi, this is Steve Rode, your friendly chief pilot here at the Public Safety Flight website. Be sure to visit psflight.org to get in on my private email list, read all the latest posts, or ask me all of your public safety drone questions. That's psflight.org, or if that trips you up, you can land in the right place by using publicsafetyflight.org. Brandon Carr is from Paraland, Texas, and he's currently the Chief Pilot UAS Program Coordinator and Night Shift Patrolman for the Pearland Police Department, and I thought I had a full plate. Brandon is another guest that has a different perspective on public safety drone operations because he's been a manned aircraft pilot since 2006. He worked hard and earned his commercial pilot ratings as well as becoming a certified flight instructor for single-engine airplanes, multi-engine airplanes, and trains instrument pilots, and that's, that's quite an accomplishment, but that's not all. Brandon is also the head honcho of the Gulf Coast Regional Public Safety UAS Response Task Force in Texas that's comprised of over 85 agencies and 250 pilots that fly to assist police, fire, and other agencies with natural disasters and major incidents. Brandon, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. It seems like I've had a series of guests on that have been manned aircraft pilots. So I'm a manned aircraft commercial instrument rated pilot also. I've been flying since 1988. With your background in manned aircraft, I'd love to hear your opinion about what new public safety drone pilots miss out in their 60-question multiple-choice license <laughs> exam that they didn't learn by hanging out and spending time with a CFI in a cockpit. I think the biggest disservice that they that they have by only having a written exam, and I understand there's some scaling they have to do with that, but is is understanding just how much a manned pilot has to manage while he's flying around in a blue sky event, much less a major critical incident. And things get even more hazardous as they're flying around and they come into an emergency. So it's having that perspective and that appreciation for just what all a manned aviation pilot has to go through just to fly the plane, much less also have to worry about drones, I think is the biggest gap there for that. A new drone pilot doesn't get much instruction about things like risk management, aeronautical decision making. Mm -hmm. And how does that impact their ability to make good decisions on the, the flight line? As we all know, the majority of crashes with airplanes happen because of human error. And that is that's one of the bigger issues that they have um, unless they start to fly more and more. And there's always the people who have crashed and the people who are going to crash. Right. Uh, until they have that, that appreciation for what all is going on and how to manage when everything is going wrong, how to troubleshoot problems on the fly. I, I think that that's one of the bigger issues that they have with not having a check ride at the end of getting their 107 license. It, having that examiner that just decides to pull out the choke on your plane while you're flying you know, or jack the trim all the way up and you're not looking. I, I think that's that's one of the issues that they have on not really understanding about risk management side of things. You know, It's a drone. It just flies. If something goes wrong, it comes straight down. No harm, no foul. But from a manned aviation perspective, that's a life. I, I think that's 
that is one of the bigger gaps that they have. And I think that there is there's significant training that could be implemented in to help understand risk management a little bit better on both the 107 side and the manned aviation side to integrate with drones. So since we're both manned aircraft pilots and drone pilots, what do you think that we can do to help drone pilots over that that hurdle? One of the things that I run into is trying to explain something. And I bet you and I were the same when we were student pilots. We knew it all, right? There wasn't <laughs> flawless check rides. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so how do we help the new drone pilot that doesn't have much experience in aviation to be aware of these issues? Because one of the things that I run into are guys that got involved in drones because the department was, they really didn't have much interest in aviation per se. Yeah. And, and so when you start to talk about like airspace and other things. I've actually had people say to me, I don't care about that. I'll do my own thing. <laughs> yep. I've talked to those agencies too. I think that one of the biggest benefits a manned aviation pilot could have is to actually go out to those agencies and integrate with them. Even if you don't necessarily are going to be flying around them, it really does benefit the drone pilots to understand the perspective of a manned aviation pilot, especially knowing what their capabilities are. Can they just yank the plane up real quick and get out of the way? Well, no, you can get a power on stall if you're having yeah. a problem. And helicopters are a little bit different. They also have their limitations. I think that having that integration and, and having those manned aviation pilots go and talk to the drone pilots not only will help the manned aviation pilots get a perspective on what the drones can and cannot do, but it'll help the drone pilots on the flip side of that as well. One of the things I've done is actually invited drone pilots to come fly with me in the airplane. And one of the things that they always walk away with is, uh, you can't see a damn drone down there. It's true. You can't really experience uh, the fact that if you're in the airplane looking down, there's a lot of ground clutter and everything kind of meshes together. If you're on the ground looking up with a blue sky, it's easy to see the one or two planes in the air. So the expectation that uh, aircraft are going to get out of the way, yeah, it's, just, no. it's not going to happen. No. But most aviation pilots, they've been flying for a little while. They've also had bird strikes, right? Like, oh, yeah. When, when I had my first bird strike, I never saw the bird. I just heard a boom. And then when we got on the ground, we're like, the heck was that? Oh, there's blood on our wing. Yeah. And so it's the same thing. We're, we're not going to see a drone, especially when they're painting on the color of clouds and asphalt. Mm-hmm. It, there is a, a perspective there that, would, that definitely could be learned from the drone pilot side of things as well. For sure. All right. You and I have both learned the best aviation lessons in life from unexpected learning opportunities. Those (laughs) oh crap moments we've all had. So, and trust me, I've learned over the years so much about what never to do again. Do you have any experiences like that in an airplane or with your drone that you'd like to share so that others can learn the easy way? Actually, so the first time I tried to kill my flight instructor, I wasn't doing my private pilot side of things. We were coming in to land at one of our touch-and-go airports out in the middle of nowhere, west side of Houston. And that was when I first really got really good training on crosswind landing. So private pilot, not a whole lot of flight time still. I'm coming into land, and of course, right when I'm crabbing nice and into the wind, I got this, and then gust. And both of us were like, oh, God, <laughs> full power, go around. So that's when I got my first real appreciation for crosswind landings and how much gusts can really push you around. That also got taken in with drone work, flying around buildings and flying around critical infrastructure and whatnot. Those wind gusts are just as, as pertinent on unmanned aircraft as they are manned aircraft. And so having an appreciation for wind, paying attention to what the gusts are looking like, because 
the METAR may not always show it. And so you, you have to really pay attention to that, really pay attention to that convective turbulence that's coming around and the me mechanical turbulence coming around and pay attention. I think that is, that's one of the bigger takeaways from the manned aviation side of things for the unmanned aviation side of things, paying attention to your battery life because having a tromp across uh, fields and have it try and find your drone in the middle of uh, next to a flooded river bank is not the most fun things to do, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it just goes into that risk management, right? Paying attention, not accepting risk when it doesn't outweigh, you know, if the benefits don't outweigh it, don't accept any unnecessary risk. Yeah. I'm always a broken record when it comes to risk versus reward, unless you're willing <laughs> to personally take on that liability for making that decision. It's just mm -hmm. not worth making that flight. Brandon, no. how does the new inexperienced pilot just gotten his 107 or his agency has just certified him under a COA, which is crazy, but another story. <laughs> how does that pilot say, no, I'm not going to fly to his commanding officer? So really hammering home that it's not the commanding officer who's on the line. It, it's the PIC, right? It, it, the supervisor can breathe down your neck, fly. And that goes into the you know, impulsivity side of thing, going into those hazardous attitudes and, and understanding how to combat those. It's a very real thing. We always laughed at it, machoism and impulsivity and whatnot. They are alive and well. They are a thing. So I think that I think that them going in and, and understanding that if you're going to go and you're going to fly your drone and sure, you're going to just fly, nothing's going to happen. And vulnerability, nothing's going to happen to me. And go and fly the drone and something bad does happen. Your drone program essentially is grounded, not only because you just smoked your drone on a tree because you weren't paying attention or power line because any collision won't find the, the power line. Now your drone program is dead in the water because you decided to go and fly anyway and you didn't do a good enough job having situational awareness, doing a risk benefit analysis, and you flew and now you have some problems. On the flip side of things, if everything goes right, we me wearing a police badge. Now you went and violated somebody's rights because you didn't have the legal backing to do what you did. Having the legal analysis is part of the risk benefit analysis that you should be doing. They are imperative and they are a massive portion of any successful drone program, whether it's a commercial or public safety, you have to do it. It, it is very necessary. So it's funny when I first started flying drones in 2014, I was like, I am finding every opportunity to fly and it's now 2021 and i don't know if i should admit this but now i find every opportunity not to fly right because i, I have learned gravity always wins the drone is going to fail at the worst possible time it's it's going to come down all these new rules and regulations and as you mentioned whether you are flying under a, a government agency self-certification or your part 107 pilot, the liability ends with the pilot. So you are always personally liable. You can never get around that. So you have to wonder, am I willing to risk what assets I have at home and everything else to do something that has no possible chance of an outcome? So I mean, here's a quick example, and then you give me one that's similar. I was called in by emergency management to find a missing man. I got there to the scene. It was getting towards dark, wasn't dark yet, and the man's son was there. Please help find my father. I can't find my father. I turned to emergency management and I said, what was the last sighting? And they said, day before yesterday. Where the hell am I going to look? <laughs> the whole state. <laughs> the whole so have you done that showing up at a scene and just bad intelligence and no, no place to look? 
Yeah, last night, actually, we got a drone call out. We had a missing person in mutual aid from one of the neighboring counties. They had a missing juvenile and they were having a hard time locating her, but they just didn't they just didn't do a good enough job of really going through the due diligence to try and find her without having to put assets in the air. Mm. Yeah, the last ping was at a Walmart. And the last time they talked to her, that she said she was at a park and the officers that was working that area just wasn't he's somewhat new and but the search area that they were trying to give us was just absolutely massive huge like i it wasn't just me that needed to get called out i needed to bring out our whole team and so we started asking questions like when was the last time we talked to her do you have any other information that we may be able to benefit from they're like she said she was near a park did you check the park that's right by walmart what park right next to walmart (laughs) that one right over there oh (laughs) and sure enough there she is we try to we try to mitigate risk by has all of the due diligence been accomplished before we go and try and put drones in the air? Because I'm like you, when we first got these drones out, the <laughs> burglary alarm, let's check the roof. Nobody yeah. goes, so let's, let's check it. We did the same thing. And it, it's, I think it's good to have that drive, but it's also good to be cautious because again, it, you don't want to, you don't want to put that drone in the air and then something go wrong and then have to type the letter. Dear chief, no one was more surprised than I when <laughs> I didn't do a pre-flight check and now my drone smoked. You'd mentioned uh, power lines earlier. Right. And, yeah. uh, and I just remembered I have this other website, reportdroneaccident.com. <laughs> and uh, I just had somebody submit a Mavic accident and actually sent yep. in the footage of the Mavic hitting the power line. <laughs> yeah. I, I almost hit one doing the same thing, not accepting any extra risk. I was flying a little bit further than I probably should have been. And I caught close to a power line and my depth perception at, at night. Oh, yeah. Perfect. Dead on. I was flying and I'm like, what is that? That There's something weird in my thermal here. I don't know what that is. And that, it, I, it clicked. Oh, crap. I'm in the power lines. Oh, and so I just had to back it right on out. I made it in. I can make it out. Yeah. <laughs> so oh, my God. I back it straight on out. It just wasn't paying attention. That's a big factor on it. Tell us about some tough calls that you've had, like those haven't been tough enough, where you've had complex issues to deal with, whether it's intelligence or location or atmosphere, (laughs) airspace, all sorts of things. Give us some examples. So I got two good ones. Uh, The first one was we had a Lone Star rally uh, down here in Houston, or down in Galveston, I should say. We did a mutual aid with them. We had good reports. The FBI was out there. The DPS was out there. Rangers were out there. Everybody was out there. We had good intel that rival gangbangers, outlaw motorcycle gangs, flex their turf down there mm-hmm. at the Lone Star Rally. And they were afraid that there was going to be another major shootout because we had just had the Waco shooting not too long ago. And so they thought it was going to be another event. And so they wanted eyes in the sky 24-7 at various strongholds for those motorcycle gangs. And Galveston is a class Delta airspace. And the vast majority of the island is a zero grid. Naturally, they called me out day of. And they're like, we want you to be out there for three days. I'm like, well, it's a 90-day process to go through drone zones. So (laughs) if you wanted me here, you probably should have let me know ahead of time. But I called the SGI. I went through the SGI process. We called the SOC in D.C. Mm -hmm. Let them know what we had going on. And that was difficult because they did not understand the emergency and so they didn't want to approve the ECOA uh, because there, nobody was shooting each other yet. Mm-hmm. And so I had to explain to them that this could pop off at any time. We're trying to make sure that we can mitigate that from happening. And for four hours trying to explain to the SGI process that's going on, I had Galveston breathing down my neck, fly, mm-hmm. fly, fly. Who's going to report you? You're the police type thing. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not risking my program just because you want me to put a drone in the air right here. That's a violation. That's a plus. 
odds are, because Murphy's Law is alive and well, odds are I'm going to see probable cause that we could go and arrest this guy on, and I can't use it because it's an illegal flight. I'm not right. doing it. So that was hectic. Eventually, I got the SGI for three days. It's from my understanding, it's the longest ECOA that's been approved so far, which was awesome. Uh, and everything went great. No issues really there. We were it had to manage airspace with manned aviation with a couple of other drones in the air. We had counter UAS operations happening against us from them. So that was interesting because I'm sure they didn't have a waiver. That was the first time that we started seeing counter UAS operations conducted against us. Isn't it only a matter of time before somebody shoots down a, a legitimate drone in an operation? Oh, for sure. For sure. It's going to happen. It, I'd, I'd be very surprised if it hasn't already happened and it's just never made mainstream in, you know, news. Mm-hmm. So that was the first one. The other one was the George Floyd entombment. He, George Floyd is buried 200 feet from my police department. Oh. And so we, I set up a TFR for the airspace. So I wanted to lock down the airspace so that we can have multiple drones in the air and so not have a chaotic event. So we had to manage airspace with our UAS operations and then multiple other agencies who were also assisting us. And we integrated and we had as many as 10 drones in the air at any given time, all sending in data into the EOC so that everybody could see their everybody's feeds and know where everybody was. So managing the airspace for that was a task. I ran air, I was air boss for that. So that was, that was interesting to have to manage all of that. Again, we had counter UAS operations there as well. And, but it was, a, it was a good operation. Uh, we learned a whole lot figuring out how to coordinate airspace and set different altitudes for everybody, just like we do in manned aviation. Mm-hmm. And, and having that perspective also helps figure that stuff out faster. But that is, those are the two bigger operations we have where we had to learn a whole lot and under, knowing what manned aviation capabilities are and knowing what drone net capabilities are really helps make that smooth. But I think it's important for any agency that is going to have a larger drone operation that has to integrate with manned aviation, whether it's a neighboring agency or otherwise, I think it's important for them to really understand that perspective for them to be successful. You mentioned a very good point, which was just recently I talked to Jonathan Ruprecht. He's a drone mm-hmm. aviation attorney. Yeah. And and he was saying that one of the things that he looks for as an attorney is whether or not the agency flying has violated any of the rules, right? Mm-hmm. Or in compliance, because then he'll use that to pick apart. If you're willing to right. do that, what else? Yeah. So even before you've taken off. Yeah. And it's important. And that was one of the reasons why Pearland pushed to have their Beyond Vigil on a Sight waiver, because most operations that we're doing occur in a distance that we would need a BV loss wa- uh, waiver. And luckily we were the first or the second agency in the nation to get the tactical beyond visual on a site waiver approved. And now we've, I've made a guide that makes it easier for everybody to get it. So everybody can be compliant because unfortunately I know that there's a ton of agencies out there that fly beyond visual on a site and, and let's try to make it legal. You know what I mean? Let's talk about the ultimate coordination of aviation assets you said that you did some work with combining both manned and unmanned aircraft. It's one thing to fit them together in the airspace, but have you done any work of actually having them on the same incident working together? Oh, yeah. There's multiple incidents that we'll have a suspect out on the loose. And because drones are just so much faster response, you know, I can get them in the air in no time versus you got to do a pre-flight check on the helicopter, which takes way longer than on a drone. Then you got to fly on scene. I've done multiple events doing search for a person, whether it's a missing person or a suspect, where I'll have lower altitude from 100 to 200 feet. And then they have from 400 and up. And it's been a non-issue. We've had a, several incidents where we've searched for suspects 
We've had at least two drones in the air. We had a helicopter and fixed wing all looking for the same suspects. It's just a matter of being sure to understand where everybody is going to be and make sure that everybody maintains their hard decks and so that we don't have any kind of confliction. I carry around an aviation radio on my backpack. Being a manned aviation side of things, I have the, the permits to do that. And then we also talk on our, on our radios that make it easy for us to, to communicate as well. It can be done very safely. You just have to maintain effective communication. At the minute that effective communication is gone, then you got to really be careful. Have you had a situation where the manned aircraft was directing the drones where to go? We've had that a handful of times. Usually it's not a, the manned aviation is, is providing direction to drones unless they are running out of gas <laughs> and they got to get out of there because they showed up late or they, they have been flying all day and then we got the call out right at the end of their shift. And so they hadn't filled up. And so they would say, you know, we have a point of interest. We got heat signature or we got an odd coloration in the ground over there. Mm-hmm. Let's get a drone over there. And then I, we got to bug out. So we've had that usually it's first come first serve. It's a, it's a little bit of a race to try and figure out who can find them first. Was it the drone or the manned aviation? My main thing about it though, guys, for the listeners on here, it can be a competition. It can be fun, but understand that you're running our most expensive platform is the M300. It's a $20,000 system. The camera alone is 10, right? The main aviation equipment, nine times out of 10, is way better than what you have. Oh, yes. Yeah, the thermal you know, equipment. Say, right. Yeah, you just can't compete. And so if they say ground, let them do their job. At the end of the day, that we're wanting to have a safe operation. You don't want to, you don't want to have that machoism where you're just like, no, I've got the drone and I'm going to fly no matter what. You just can't compete with their equipment. I had a military drone pilot tell me that with their thermal cameras on the military drones, he said, Steve, yeah. I'm not exaggerating. I can read a license plate at 19,000 feet. Yeah, see, he, he said, with, that. with a Mavic, <laughs> I can't tell a horse from a deer at 100 feet. <laughs> even with the, yeah, even with the M300 and the H20T, which is our most advanced platform that we fly, it, you're just, it's awesome. Don't get me wrong. It's great to have. It's a huge force multiplier. But if you're going to compare them to manned aviation, they're not comparable. You're comparing a Civic to a Ferrari. It's just not going to happen. All right. What three skills or aviation mindset items do you think new public safety pilots should hunt down and make an effort to learn more about? Uh, crew resource management is a bit. With manned aviation, we try to make sure that we bring in as much as we can to understand the flight. If we can have extra people to help us make good decisions, to help us watch the gauges, to help us look for emergency landing zones, our flight is safer. I see too many drone pilots out there just trying to do all of it on their own. If you can bring more people out, bring more people out. Conversely, don't bring the entire army if you don't need an entire army. So understanding crew resource management is a big one. Understanding what hardware equipment do you need? Do you have enough of it? What personnel do you have? Do you have enough of it? Yeah, informational resources as well as is another key component. I think drone pilots as a whole don't really don't really take advantage of crew resource management as well as they should. Uh, so that's going to be the first one, uh, paramount in my opinion. That's interesting because crew resource management, I was flying yesterday, so I'm fire demon one when I'm flying in the airplane. And <laughs> I, I was flying and I had a brand new person. And mm-hmm. before we got in the plane, I made him do the the checklist, the pre-flight, and walked him through it so he understood the airplane and understood in the airplane, I don't care how many hours I have, if you see something, say something. We're a team, we're a crew, we're working together. There's no one more important. So same thing on the ground, right? Yes. 
Yeah, the next big one would be communication because we are big, as main aviation pilots, we're big on communication, right? We're always reporting where we're at with whether it's in the path or we're communicating with approach, make sure that we got good flight following. We, we don't want to get lost. And so right. we are we are very keen on making sure that we always know where we're at and we're always communicating that. And I think that drone pilots also could really benefit from that. It's one of the key components when I'm training people on to really focus on because, it, yeah, you, you may have a good flight. You're, it's really difficult to explain where that missing juvenile is next to a tree in a field. Like, how do you tell, how do you tell people on the ground? Yeah, he's by the tree, right? It, it's easy if it's a crossroad, but it's not always going to be a crossroad. So you really got to practice communication on how you're going to communicate aerial observation to people on the ground, especially if they don't know what your capabilities are. So I think having that is a big takeaway. And then practicing pilot proficiency. So with manned aviation side of things, we have to do our currencies. We have to do Mm -hmm. it every three months. We make sure we have our flights. There is no requirement on drone operations. We just have to make sure we get our recurrent every 24 months and then we're done. And they just made it even easier with just being able to take the online test and that's it. There, There is no flight requirement. So really practice your currencies that Paraline has built into our policy that they have to fly every so many months. If they don't, then they have to go, they're forced to go through proficiency training and really practice it, really take advantage of of some of those call outs that if the risk benefit is acceptable, even if you don't think you're going to find them, fly anyway, Mm -hmm. go out there and practice being safe. Go through the pre-flight checklist. Go through the, the flight, you know, all the safety features of being uh, flying and practice what you're doing. Do your pre-flight, post-flight check. That way you maintain your proficiency. So if you haven't flown in months and you come back out there and you're not trying to dust off cobwebs and as you fly, that way it keeps you you keen and updated on all the things. It makes it for a safer flight and a safer scene. So that would be my three. Excellent. Now, the, those are actually... Really good points. I totally agree with you because just the basics of being able to aviate, navigate, communicate. Just I can't tell you how frustrating <laughs> it has been for me, for example, to be flying the drone, find a, a heat signature, and then say, yep. here's the GPS coordinates of the heat signature, and have people <laughs> go, what do I do with that? It's not the time to figure that out. So you got to start with the very basics and get everybody to work together. Besides these tough calls that you've had, have you had a situation where something didn't go as you thought it would? <laughs> Every flight. <laughs> yeah, we've had a few instances where we thought we had it down. We, we knew we were going to get out there and everything was going to go right. We did a good pre-flight checklist. Everything was ready to go. And then we get out there and everything goes wrong. With one of the bigger issues that we had recently where we had Tropical Storm Beta come through and some of Paraland got flooded. We're flying the M300. And the M300 has the, it's similar to the smart controller. So you got the monitor built into your remote, right? The app crashed. And if the app crashes, you have no idea if you still have connectivity with the drone. Because with the, and even with the Mavic, with the original remotes, it still shows you connectivity. 300 app crashes, which happens all the time. You don't know if you have it or not. And making sure that you maintain visual line of sight is imperative there. Making sure that you have situational awareness on where your drone is imperative there because if the app crashes and you don't know where your drone is, what are you going to do? And for those who aren't familiar with where Paraland is, we are the half of our city is class Bravo airspace to the surface because of Hobby International Airport being very close to where we are. So we have to make sure that we are on our game about where we are. We have a lot of air traffic overhead. We have Life Flight that's flying through. We have Houston Fire, the Houston Police Department flying. They're manned aviations that are all over Paraland all the time. Uh, so we have to be on our game. And, and whenever you have that kind of stuff go wrong, if you haven't practiced that, 
you're going to be up a creek. And and so it's very important that you practice that kind of stuff. Practice failures. Don't always practice successful flights. Practice losing an app. Practice losing connectivity. What's going to happen? Let's talk about that. That's important. I'm sure you've seen departments that like fire and police will share a drone. So you get called out to an incident. Fire had it last time. How do you know what the settings are? So in a situation like that, what what do you recommend to departments that they come on shift and they they work through it or what? So I think that it's, I think it's imperative to have a pre-flight checklist and a vehicle checklist. So whenever those agencies, I, I help set up programs for agencies all over the nation. One of the things that we talk about, if you're going to share drones like that, is it eerily similar to a vehicle checkout. So if you have a share vehicle program, you take the vehicle, you do a vehicle check of it before you ever go out on duty. If y'all are going to share platforms like that, you also need to have that because you need to make sure that the person before it didn't crash into something and just miss it. Right. The other thing about that is, so I'm a mode three flyer. So if you're a DJI guy, mode three, the sticks are all twisted up compared to the default. And I got half my team that hates me for it. It's a really good way to play tricks on people because most pilots being mode two, left stick is up or me stick is up. So if you switch it to mode three, the drone won't take off. You can go full up. all, And so it's an easy way to play a prank on people just switch it over to that. But if you don't have the stick, the stick mode check and your pre-fly check, you're, you're going to think something's wrong with your drone. So it, if you're going to have shared platforms like that, you really have to have a really good pre-flight checklist and you really have to harp on it. You got to make sure your guys are doing it because it's easy to just get the drone out, hold it out and turn it on and hope it goes. It's another thing to make sure that the stick bones are correct to make sure that the, <laughs> all the camera settings are right. So that's what I would recommend to them is really build out the checklist to, to work well with both agencies and both departments. Hopefully you have a spare crystal ball to pull out right now because <laughs> I, I want you to tell us what for this field going forward and what the future is from your point. So a lot of people have heard about the Drone's First Responder Program now. If you haven't, check out Chula Vista Police Department. They have what's called the Drone's First Responder Program. It, it essentially is they get a 911 call, they put a drone in the air and they fly to the scene. On average, they get a drone overhead in three minutes, which is faster than most people can get their vehicles to most scenes. They are uniquely positioned geographically to make that happen. Uh, They have the right amount of fire departments across the city to where it makes it easy to overlap. But I think that's where everything is headed currently. I think that we'll probably see most agencies moving to that within the next five to 10 years to where it'll be, you'll be hard pressed to not find an agency with that, with a drone program. I think that's where we're headed. One of the things that kind of scares me about that is it's most of those flights are done autonomously. Most of those flights, they see something going on. They just launch the drone. It goes to a geo location. But if you don't understand how that drone operates, if you don't understand how to look for error and how to look for failure, you're going to be in a lot of trouble if you just trust the computer to do it all, every single time, especially if you work in a congested airspace environment like I do. And so I think that's where everything is headed. I'm excited to see that because it, as a patrolman, I would love to have a drone overhead for every every scene that I go on. Do I need it? No. Would I like to have a drone there before I get there? Yes. Oh, yeah. Streaming live you know, video to you? Right. Like I, I would love to have that kind of intel. That helps me be safer. That helps me make safer decisions, which helps the citizens apparently in it and be safer. I think that it's going to be huge. And I think it's going to, to really change how a lot of people do policing and how a lot of people do firefighting. I think that it's, it's a much needed change that's coming, but it, there's going to be some growing pains for sure. So but I'm excited about it. I think that's going to be, be huge for us. Hi, this is Steve Rode, your friendly chief pilot here at the Public Safety Flight website. Be sure to visit psflight.org to get in on my private email list 
read all the latest posts, or ask me all of your public safety drone questions. That's psflight.org, or if that trips you up, you can land in the right place by using publicsafetyflight.org.